coming up on the Swish Lake City podcast. This is the Lowry Marketing episode. We're going to be talking all about Lowry and his first season with the Jazz, his career up until this point, and then how I think he will play in the future, as well as looking at where does he stand in the NBA? Where does he rank among the NBA's top players? Um, so all that coming up. First, a word from our sponsor, Underdog Fantasy. As always, check the show notes for details. Also, if you are interested in supporting the podcast, in supporting me and my career with this, then there's also a link to support me down below in the show notes. This episode of the Switch Lake City podcast is brought to you by Underdog Fantasy. I want to tell you about the easiest way to get in on some action on the NBA. It's Underdog Fantasy and their pick'em game. Just pick higher or lower on your favorite or least favorite player stats and you can win up to 20 times your money in a single night. Underdog keeps it super simple with their easy-to-use website and mobile apps. Pick between two and five players to fill out your pick entry, get every pick right, and take home some solid hard cash. Use the code SWISH, S-W-I-S-H, and get your first deposit doubled up to $100 by Underdog. That means if you pay $100, then they will match that $100 deposit, and you'll have $200 to put on fantasy games. Visit underdogfantasy.com or find them in the App Store, and don't forget to register with my promo code SWISH to get your fantasy, to get your first deposit doubled up to $100. Sign up today with promo code SWISH and get your first deposit doubled up to $100. You must be 18 plus and present in a state where Underdog Fantasy operates. In terms of apply, concerned with your play, call 1-800-522-4700 or visit www.ncpgambling.org. Laurie Markkinen. This is the Laurie Markkinen episode. This we, we gotta we gotta jump into it. We gotta explore Laurie because I think he's an incredibly fascinating player. I'm not just saying that as a Jazz fan. I think his recent ascension is something that is different. Um, we haven't seen it a lot in the NBA, especially a guy at this stage in his career. For example, I was going through kind of like the the most recent, most improved players. Heck, all the, all the most improved players. Most players are getting that after their, like, third season. Um, usually have, like, maybe a rough second season after their rookie season, and then they take a jump their third season. Like, the sophomore slump can be real, and then players take a jump. So I was looking at guys like Paul George, like Goran, like CJ McCollum, um, Pascal Siakam, Brandon Ingram, John Morant, pretty much everybody else that has won the most improved award. They've all kind of had a similar trajectory where they have a good rookie season maybe a not so good second season and then they take a really big leap their third season same thing with Giannis Laurie Markkinen is a little bit different he came into the league out of Arizona he was the number seven pick in the 2017 NBA draft also curious like if we did a redraft of that draft I wonder where he would go maybe in that same range uh just doing the exercise off the top of my head you got Tatum probably number one, Donovan Mitchell, number two, Bam Adebayo, number three. I think that's fair. Then you get to like Darren Fox, you get to Larry Markkinen. And yeah, you're probably looking at him top five. Maybe, maybe I'm forgetting somebody, but he came into the league. He had a really good rookie season. Um, Like actually looking at the stats of his rookie season, you can see why there was so much intrigue and looking at his stats in Arizona too. You and watching him in Arizona, 
you can understand why people were interested in him and why he had some of the hype that he had. I mean, people were comparing him to Dirk Nowitzki, to Kristaps Porzingis, to basically any white, big shooting player, white seven-footer that can shoot. Laurie Markkinen was going to fit into that mold. And that's how he came out of college. His first rookie season um, under Coach Fred Hoiberg, I think the coaching is important to note. He averaged 15.2 points per game. Shot 36% from three, 43% from the field, seven and a half rebounds per game. All in all, like a pretty solid rookie season. He played in 68 games and started all 68 of those games. Um, Played in about 30 minutes per game. I mean, like that's a good rookie season. Averaging almost 16 and almost eight as a rookie is solid. You're feeling good about that. And while also being a 36% shooter from the three, that's like a really good rookie season. And so Larry Markkinen, he makes first-team All-Rookie along with Donovan Mitchell, Jason Tatum, Ben Simmons, and Kyle Kuzma. Looking at that rookie class, that's just such a solid rookie class. Um, really good draft. And then there's Ben Simmons. Going to his second season, this was probably the, the best season of his career before getting to Utah. So he played in 52 games, started in 51 of those. Um. He played about 32.3 minutes per game and shot 43% from the field. Not great. 36% from three. So there wasn't really an uptick as far as, as, far as his efficiencies went that season. Um, he averaged 18.7 points per game, nine rebounds per game, 1.4 assists per game. I mean, by, by a lot of marks, it was his best season, especially when you look at kind of like the overall production. And unfortunately, Lari has kind of an injury history. Like he hasn't crossed 70 games in his career. He probably could have done that this last year, but because the Jazz were in a position to lose some games, he didn't cross that threshold. His third season. Oh, I think it's also important to note that during his second season, there was a coaching change um, from Fred Hoiberg to Jim Boylan former running Utes, Utah Utes legend, Jim Boylan. So his third season, my big question looking at it was, did Jim Boylan maximize Laurie Markkinen? Laurie's taking less field goals. He's playing less minutes. He is shooting worse from the field, worse from three. Like you start to dive into the numbers and there wasn't really anything that he had done better. And I wonder if part of that is just him being maximized as a player and was Jim Boylan able to maximize him as a player? I kind of don't think so. Look, I haven't watched all of 2019, 2020 Laurie marketing because frankly, I'm just, I'm not going to go back that far. Um, and I don't know if it's worth it, but I, I, yeah, I don't know. I thought, I thought that was interesting. Um, I wonder if Jim Boylan was able to maximize him or not. So his fourth season, also as Jim Boylan as his head coach, um, some of the efficiencies improve, but he starts playing even less minutes per game. He's playing 25.8 minutes per game at this stage. He shoots 48% from the field and 40% from three. So as far as like an efficiency standpoint, that's one of his best seasons, probably his second best season. But he's also, he only started in 26 out of 51 games. So didn't even start like, he, st- he barely started more than half the games. 
averaged 13.6 points per game and 5.3 rebounds per game. I mean, obviously a big drop-off. Part of that is this is kind of when Zach Levine started to break out as a player, um, started to get to like that all-star level caliber player. And the Bulls also had a really rough season that year. I believe they ended up picking fourth and picked Patrick Williams. So that's kind of why Laurie got traded. Um, but overall, just like a really weird season. And I really do think a big part of that is Jim Boylan. And by all accounts, he was not a great coach and wasn't a good coach for Laurie Markkinen. And so because of that, I think going back to did were they able to maximize Laurie Markkinen? I don't think they were. I'm going to get to this in the future because I do think Will Hardy has been able to, in a sense, maximize Larry Markkinen. In his fifth season, he gets traded to Cleveland in a three-team trade. Um, I think it sent Larry Nance Jr. to Portland, uh, Derek Jones Jr. to Chicago, and Larry Markkinen to Cleveland. So he is thrust into a completely different role in his fifth season. And I think this role change was really important for his kind of long-term trajectory. So he he is your starting small forward because you have Evan Mobley at the four and Jared Allen at the five. And then you got some combination of Darius Garland, Karis LeVert, and Colin Sexton running the backcourt in Cleveland. Interesting year. Um, he played about 30 minutes per game, so that was the highest he had played since his second season. He averaged 14.8 points per game. Um Interesting that he wasn't scoring as much. It kind of just goes to show that he probably wasn't a focal point on that offense. And I think that's fair. Playing alongside Darius Garland, Jared Allen, and Evan Mobley, all three of which, or at least Jared Allen and Darius Garland, I believe, were all-stars that year. So he's playing alongside two all-stars. Like, Larry Markkinen isn't necessarily the focal point on that team, and that's fine. He shot 44% from the field, 35%, 36% from three. Overall, like a pretty solid season. The Cavs were winning games. They were close to the play-in. I believe they ended up being the seventh seed and then lost both play-in games. Uh, Laurie played in 61 of their games that season. That's solid. I mean, he's playing in more than half the game, so I'm not like necessarily worried that there's real injury problems because he's playing more than he isn't playing. Um, but that is just something to keep an eye on as his career progresses. It kind of felt like that season in Cleveland, you found the true version of Larry Markkinen and that you had found what his role can be in the NBA. Because before that, you're looking at it and it's like, oh man, he is getting, at least from a statistical standpoint, he's getting worse and worse every single year. There's no improvement in this player. Um, we're going to have to start putting him on the bench. And then putting him in Cleveland, I think putting him in a different role was really able to allow him to kind of blossom into what he is now. The biggest thing to me is he just wasn't shooting a lot. He's only shooting 11.5 field goals per game. Um, whereas in Utah, he's shooting 17. So I think that's one of the big differences between Cleveland Larry Markkinen and Utah Larry Markkinen. However, I do think that role as the three was important for him to figure out. And I think that played a very big part in his long-term trajectory. Looking at Finland... Um, because I think his play in Finland, especially in the 2022 Eurobasket, is really important to note. So, Laurie, he played in the Eurobasket. 
Um, he played in the group phase. He played versus Israel, Poland, Serbia, the Czech Republic, Netherlands, Croatia, and Spain. So they got to the quarterfinals before losing to Spain, a really good Spain team. Larry Markkinen in that time was, I mean, he's the number one option on Finland. I don't know if anybody could even name another Finnish player. I personally can because Mikhail Jantinen played for the Renan Utes, but that's it. Um, so during that time, while he was playing with Finland, he averaged 27.9 points per game, playing 28.4 minutes per game. So he's almost scoring a point per minute, which is really good. Shot 54% from the field, 61% on twos, and then 40% on threes. Insane. He also shot 90% from the free throw. And he also, one thing that's interesting to note is how he's been able to get to the free throw line more and more throughout his career. Um, and I think part of that, he was able to learn in finish play. So, for example, looking back at his previous seasons before he played in Utah, He's shooting, I mean, the most he had shot in a season was 3.8 free throw attempts per game. He's always been a good free throw shooter. He just hasn't been a guy that gets consistently to the free throw line. Whereas in Finland, when he was playing as the number one option, he showed this new ability to get to the free throw line, averaging 7.6 free throw attempts per game. He also averaged 2.4 assists per game, 1.6 steals per game. He just had a really good Eurobasket. And Eurobasket is intense. Like, you go look at some of the people that played in Eurobasket this last year, in, two, in 2022. Nikola Jokic played. Giannis Antetokounmpo played. Luka Doncic was playing. Like, he's not just going against scrubs. He's playing against really good players. So, for him to be able to stand out and shine on that kind of a level, I think is really important. Also, the play... And just how hard people are playing is different than it is on a nightly basis in the NBA. People in Europe care so much more about winning Eurobasket or winning the FIBA World Cup or winning the Olympics than they do about winning an NBA game. All that to say, Laurie Markkinen's ascension up to this point has been really interesting. We're, we're going to take a little break, and then we're going to dive into his sixth season with the Utah Jazz. Um, some of how some of the reasons he broke out, as well as how he scored, his rebounding, his defense, um, some of his play with the Utah Jazz as point guards. But we are going to take a quick break. Laurie Markkinen's sixth season was something that we've almost never seen before. It was kind of an anomaly in a sense. So he got traded from Cleveland along with Colin Sexton, Ochai Baji, and multiple first-round picks for Donovan Mitchell. He lands in a Utah. He lands in Utah on a rebuilding team where your core is Mike Conley, Jordan Clarkson, Kelly Olynyk, Jared Vanderbilt, Malik Beasley, Walker Kessler. I mean, your core is pretty uncertain, but having him and Sexton join, you start to feel a little bit better about that core. At the same time, though, I don't think anybody had any expectations for Laurie Markkinen to blossom the way that he did. I don't know if there was any expectation for him to be the player that he turned into. Heck, I'll I'll even I'll even admit I was like before that season when I was trying to look at 
who is going to be the starting lineup. I thought it'd be Sexton, Clarkson. I had Fontecchio penciled in because he played really good in Eurobasket as well. Um, and then I think I have Laurie Markkinen and Kelly Olenek at the five. That ended up being so wrong. Your opening night starting five was Mike Conley, Jordan Clarkson, Laurie Markkinen at the three, which I think caught some people by surprise. I thought some people might think he would go back to playing the four or maybe even play the five, but you put him at the three. And then you had Jared Vanderbilt at the four and Kelly Olenek at the five. Really interesting starting lineup when you go back and look at it. So he has a pretty hot hot start in Utah. Um, He's getting more touches. The usage percentage is going up higher. And most, most importantly, he's kind of efficient and he's figured out new ways to score. And I think a lot of that was through his play in Cleveland as well as his play in, in Europe. So in October, he averaged 22 points, nine rebounds and three assists. Pretty solid. And I don't know if people remember this, but Larry Markkinen got off to a pretty bad shooting start. And that was really promising because we kind of had a good idea of what his shooting was in the NBA. Before that, he had been pretty much a 37% shooter from three and around 36% actually. And you kind of knew that he was going to be a good shooter. That's one of the things since he entered the NBA that he's been pretty good at, especially shooting from the three. So you kind of penciled him in as, hey, at least he's going to be somebody that can space the floor, be a shooter. What was so intriguing, though, was when he started in October, when the Utah Jazz started winning games, when they got rolling, when they started like 10 and 3, Larry Markkinen wasn't shooting very well. And he was able to score in a lot of other ways. He's scoring off cuts. He's breaking the ball down. He's scoring in transition. It was things that you kind of didn't expect to see from a seven footer, um, especially a seven foot shooter, somebody that had been kind of labeled as Dirk Nowitzki or as Kristaps Porzingis in that archetype of player as primarily a shooter, not so much of a transition player. And so for Laurie Markkinen to be able to show his athleticism, be a good finisher, eventually earning the nickname The Finisher, I think that was really promising for Jazz fans and for people that were paying attention. Because you knew the shooting was going to come along. Every sign before had pointed to the shooting being able to come along. He didn't really explode, though, until December. So in December, he averaged 26.8 points per game, 8.5 rebounds per game, 1.3 assists per game, and then it just went up from there. In January, he's averaging 28.5 points per game and 9 rebounds per game. February, he's averaging 27 points per game and 8 rebounds per game. In March, he's back to averaging 28 and a half rebounds per game and nine rebounds per game. And then he only played one game in April. So I'm not going to put too much stock into that. I was curious to see what Laurie looked like pre versus post all-star break. Um, because the jazz ended up making a trade. They traded Mike Conley, Jared Vanderbilt, Malik Beasley. And so you're all of a sudden you're missing that portion of production And in the starting lineup, you're putting Colin Sexton. You keep Jordan Clarkson there. You're starting to play Walker Kessler at the five a lot more after Walker Kessler had his own breakout during that season. Kelly Olenek at the four. So, I mean, he's playing with two guys, three guys that he had played with a bit. But the biggest thing is he was missing Mike Conley. And so I think a lot of people, including myself, questioned whether or not he was going to be able to be that same caliber player 
after not having a true point guard to be able to set him up on a consistent basis. This is still a question that Jazz fans are battling out. Um, I'm going to try to answer this to the best of my abilities by looking into the stats and breaking down his and Mike Conley's play. I've also watched a lot of film on it. All that to say, though, he was kind of a different player after the All-Star break, but in a good way. His usage percentage jumped from 24.8% to 30.5%. Um, and then he ended up locking up the most improved player award without even playing in April. So, I, I mean, he had a really big jump. And after the All-Star break, he's averaging more points. He's averaging more rebounds. He's playing more minutes. He's doing more. I think that's really promising if you're a Jazz fan. Really, really promising. So he ends up locking up the most improved player award. I think it was like pretty set in stone. You kind of had a battle between him and Shea Gilgis Alexander. But for those that were paying attention, Shea Gilgis Alexander was already that dude. I think there was an argument, and I got into this a little bit on the Thatcher effect. Like, is it harder for a guy to go from a borderline all-star to an all-NBA player? Or is it harder for a guy to go from a role player to an all-star level player? Borderline all-NBA. Those were kind of the two jumps that those two players had taken. And ultimately, the voters wisely decided that Larry Markkinen should be the most improved player in the NBA. I'm totally fine with that. I think it's a great, great pick. How does he compare to some other past winners of the most improved player? So you had John Morant, you had Desmond Bain, Brandon Ingram, Pascal Siakam, Jimmy Butler, CJ McCollum, Julius Randle, Goran Dragic, Victor Oladipo. You kind of have two different t- tiers of players there. Um, so Laurie Markin, and he's kind of a late bloomer. I got into this a little bit on the opening. But most players, as they win the most improved player, they're usually playing their first two seasons, and then they win it by year three. That's kind of where they have their big leap. Laurie Markkinen had his big leap in year six. I think some of the only comparable players are Julius Randle, Goran Dragic, and Victor Oladipo, all three of whom had their breakouts in kind of later seasons of their career. Julius Randle had played in L.A. He played in New Orleans, and then he gets moved to the Knicks, and he kind of gets featured as more of a number one option, and he breaks out and becomes the most improved player award on their way to a playoff berth. Goran Dragic had played some good seasons. I think people knew he was a good basketball player. Um, He had kind of shined when he was in Phoenix, but ultimately I don't think anybody saw his emergence as an all NBA player in Miami. So he won the most improved player in 2013 to 2014. Um, Oh, that was actually in Phoenix. That's when he kind of broke out as an all NBA player. That Phoenix team ended up at over achieving in a lot of ways. Like you go look at that roster. Um, and I'd done this exercise before of trying to understand the jazz and some of these teams that break out. So that Phoenix team, I mean, they didn't go to the playoffs because the West was really good, but they had a winning record. And he played pretty good for that team uh, in his, this is Gordon Dragic, in his season with them, he averaged 20.8, 20.3 points per game, six assists, 
and most importantly, led them to a winning record. Also, the efficiencies were kind of insane, 50-40 in the 80s. Like, really good season from Goran Dragic. He's kind of a late bloomer. Another late bloomer was Victor Oladipo. And you look at his situations that he was in before. So he started in Orlando, never really broke out there. I mean, he was like a 16-point-per-game guy there. Then he plays one season in Oklahoma City and plays averages about 16 points per game. Like, he's a solid player. I think everybody had kind of established that he was a solid player. But then he gets to Indiana. And for whatever reason, the situation was better. He was put in a much better overall environment for him, playing alongside Sabonis, Miles Turner, kind of a decent Indiana squad. Bojan Bogdanovich was on that team. They're winning games. They're competitive. He ends up being all NBA and all defense. Uh, actually, like an incredible season. And I personally miss Prime Victor Oladipo. But his breakout was kind of unprecedented. Like, I don't think people thought he was going to be an all NBA and all defensive level player at that point in his career. People, and look, this is kind of how the NBA works. And this is how evaluation works. Um, once we see enough of a player, we are we kind of pencil them in as that player. That's who they're going to be for the rest of their career. And so we did that. I think we had the same mistake. Maybe it's not even a mistake. Maybe it's just analysis. But we had the same sort of analysis with Larry Markkinen. People thought he was going to be that same guy that he was in Chicago or Cleveland. And even though he could prove that he played the small forward, that he could play the small forward, and you could have a jumbo-sized lineup. I don't know if people necessarily thought that he was going to break out the way he did. Most people didn't think he was going to break out the way he did. So what does that mean about Laurie Markkinen getting the most improved player in his sixth season? I mean, I think there's a couple ways of looking at it. First of all, he's still only 25. He, or he's just barely turned 26. That's young. Um Historically speaking, he's probably still like a year or two away from his prime. On the other hand, though, you could say, wow, this is his prime. This is what Larry, prime Larry Marketing is going to look like. And if prime Larry Marketing is a 25, 8, 2 assists per game guy, shoots 50% from the field, 39% from three, I think you feel pretty good about prime Larry Marketing. Also, a guy that contributes to winning and one of the best offensive players in the NBA, an all-star, I think that you feel pretty good. But the other question is, is there also room for him to keep improving? And we saw a little bit of that of this after the all-star break. The number one thing with Laurie Markkinen, like I don't think he's ever going to be an all-world defender. I don't think he's going to get to that Giannis level. I don't know if he is going to be that player. That's fine. So offensively, you're kind of wondering, how can he improve his offensive game? Like, he was an insane, otherworldly scorer. And you start to watch some film. You start to dive into a little bit deeper. He doesn't score off the dribble a lot, which is, I don't know. He averaged 26 and didn't do anything off the dribble. So you start to wonder, like, oh, how is that going to translate into the playoffs? Is he going to be good enough in the playoffs? Is he going to be able to hold his own? and be able to create for himself when defenses tighten up? I think that's a fair question. I also think the playmaking needs to improve. Being a guy that is the focal point on offense, you expect him to 
be able to create for others, especially as teams zero in on him and teams are focused on how do we stop Larry Markin from scoring? How do we stop him from getting to the basket? Let's send it. Let's send in a double team. How is he going to handle that? Uh, I think that's a fair question. And you want to see a little bit more from a playmaking perspective and you want to see him be able to turn into an above average playmaker because that does so much for you in the playoffs when things get tighter. So Lauren Markin, he had an incredible, incredible sixth season. I want to break into break it down into like some categories. First of all, how does he score? Uh, I want to break down the defense a little bit more. Um, some of the rebounding numbers. Also want to get into the point guard conversation because I think there's a serious conversation um, when you look at his next season and how he projects while also looking at who's going to be the point guard, who's going to be the guy that sets him up. So first, let's break down, let's break it down into how does Larry Markkinen score? So th- this is this is interesting. Um, it's It's interesting because on the NBA stats, you can kind of break it down into like, Hey, here's his shot types. Um, here's where he's shooting for the most. So the shot that he shot the most was jump shots. He shot 679 of them, shot 40% on jump shots. That's like pretty solid. I think you feel good about that. He shot 510 three-pointers and made 200 of them. So by far his most used shot is a three-pointer. That's where he shoots. That's where he makes his money. He's also proved to be a decent inside scorer. Um, he shot 56% on layups this last year, shooting 269. He shot 86% on dunks, shooting 128. He had tip shots. He had hook shots. He had fadeaways. He had bank shots. Like He proved to be somebody that can score inside. On finger rolls, he shot 77%. Alley-oops, he shot 67%. Everything indicates that Larry Markkinen can shoot inside when you start to break it down into like shot range from the distance that he's shooting from he shot his most shots from less than five feet away and he shot 67 percent from there then the next section that he shot most from was from 25 to 29 feet so think kind of like above the break three and he shot 35 percent from there then 20 to 24 feet that's kind of corner three um getting to the corners he shot 48 percent from there it's actually kind of insane and then the rest, he's shooting a lot less. Um, didn't really shoot too many deep threes. Shot like three. He shot eight threes from beyond 30 feet and made three of them. So he's kind of like a... And you look at his shot chart. Like, go look at his shot chart. And you'll see that he's kind of a two-range scorer in a lot of ways. But there's potential for more. He truly scores from three and from the layup. And from, or from around the basket. Like... I think it's it's really unique the way he scores because it's exactly what a coach wants. It's exactly what the a- analytics tell you to do. If you talk about the two best shots in basketball, first is a layup. The layup is the best shot in basketball. If you can get an easy layup or an easy dunk, that's the best shot in basketball. The second is a corner three where Larry Markkinen thrives and where he got a lot of shots up. In an analytic-driven NBA, the way shooting has gone you're typically seeing people shooting from the three from the layup. Not a whole lot of mid-range action going, but Laurie Markkinen still has that, and he's able to shoot from the mid-range. 
I like that it's not his primary option, though. I think him being a at-the-basket scorer and beyond-the-arc scorer just makes him so much harder to guard. We got to we talked a little bit about his creation or lack of. Um, so looking at his scoring, seventy five percent of his shots were assisted and twenty five percent were unassisted. So I think that checks out if you watch the film and kind of break it down. Like he's he's not creating a ton for himself, but he can do a little bit. And yeah, it's like every one in four plays you're seeing him create for himself or doing something off the dribble. Looking into the dribbles, I think the dribbles are interesting. Um, on the NBA Stats website, you can break it down into how many dribbles a player takes before they take their shot. And so Larry Markkinen, on 62.2% of his percent of his shots, he takes zero dribbles. On 12%, he takes one dribble. 12%, he takes two dribbles. And 12%, he takes three to six dribbles. The bulk majority of that, the bulk majority of his shots are coming off of zero dribbles. So as a catcher, whether he's cutting or whether he's shooting, most of it's coming off of zero dribbles. And I think that's really interesting because I think that's a good thing and a bad thing. Um, Looking at the Jazz's current roster where you have no clear number one option, I think it might be a bad thing because you would like your number one option to be able to create off the dribble a little bit more. However, if all of a sudden the Utah Jazz acquire somebody else or let's say Keontae George breaks out, and has an insane rookie season where he is looking like he can be a number one option or a guy that can have the ball in his hands for 36 minutes of a game, then having Larry Markkinen as the second option or being the second guy all of a sudden is a really positive thing because Larry Markkinen won't be taking touches away from him. He won't be taking touches away from George, and he will still be able to get his buckets while being incredibly efficient about how much time he's using um, being a spacer, like I just think his ability to be a scorer without having to have the ball in his hands all the time is really underrated. Looking at the defense and the rebounding, the rebounding is really good. I think you feel pretty good about the rebounding. Um, this last season, he averaged 8.6 rebounds per game. I, I typically look at rebounding percentage and defensive rebounding percentage to kind of understand how good a player is at rebounding. Um, rebounding percentage is the percentage of possessions where they where that player gets a rebound. And so Laurie Markin in this last season, he had a 20.7 defensive rebounding percentage. That's not his best. In his first two seasons, he averaged 23 and 26% defensive rebounding percentage his team rebounding percentage he shot he had a 13.6 team rebounding percentage offensive rebounding it's about 6.3 that actually was a career high his offensive rebounding percentage so a part of it there's there's a couple things to this the first thing is you have to realize he's playing alongside two bigs almost all the time yeah he's a seven footer but he was also playing a lot of minutes with Kelly Olynyk, with Walker Kessler, with Jared Vanderbilt, with Udoka Azubuki, Damian Jones. Like he's playing with other guys that are bigger that are also getting rebounds. And so because of that, some of these numbers don't look as good as you would maybe think. Like if you think about a seven footer, 
you're hoping he's like a 10 rebounded per game guy. And while Laurie Markinen is flirting with that, he's not necessarily that. But like I said, I think the context is extremely important because, or just watching the film is really important because he's a really good rebounder. He's somebody that boxes out. He's athletic enough and has enough leaping ability to grab some of the rebounds that other players can't grab. Also, he's a seven footer that just knows how to use his size, knows how to use his frame. Like the rebounding, I think, is overall a very big positive. There are a couple other questions I have, especially on defense, though. So if you're putting Laurie Markinen at the three, then you're essentially asking him to guard other threes. You're asking him to guard Jason Tatum, LeBron James, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, some of those other players that are your typical apex predators, apex forwards. So how does he do against them? Um, It's interesting because I think there's a couple things that stand out. The first is how does he do in screens? A lot of these players get screens set for them to be able to create for themselves. Laurie Marketing doesn't do a great job when he gets screened. I think it's hard when you're a seven-footer to go around a screen. And that's just not an area that he thrives in. However, there are some positives. He's good at contesting at the rim. I think that's pretty obvious being a seven-footer, but he's really good at contesting at the rim. He's, I think being like a secondary tertiary rim protector is a great role for Larry Markin on, on defense. I also think he's pretty good off the ball. Um, watching him just off the ball because he has so much size, because he, he has so much length, he's automatically kind of a plus off-ball defender. He just makes it harder for guys to throw passes to their teammates, especially when Larry Markinen's guarding them. So I think he's a pretty good defender. More of my questions come from like, how does he do as a one-on-one defender? How does he do when he's in isolation? How does he do when he's going against guards that are smaller, that are quicker, that are trying to get to the rim? Like, how is Larry Markinen going to do in those situations? So that's that's kind of where my areas of concern with him are on defense. Um. There's, there's some interesting stuff, though. So looking sort of at, at the defense um, and breaking down some of the numbers, when opponents are shooting from more than 15 feet away, so that's like kind of mid-range to three-pointer, they shoot 37.4% from the field. And so that's 0.6% better than league average. You get to the rest of them, though, when they're shooting from less than six feet they shoot 64%, and so that's 12% worse than league average. So Laurie Markkinen, by that metric, is a worse defender. That's something I'm concerned about. And opponents, they're shooting most of their shots on Laurie Markkinen as twos. Um, It's about a 71 to 29% breakdown. Um, 29% three-pointers, 71% two-pointers. And... A lot of players are shooting less than six feet and they're shooting 64% against Larry Markkinen. So that is an area of concern for me. Like how can Laurie do as his own, as an interior protect protector, um, as somebody that can protect the rim. I'm curious. I'm curious about that. I think part of it will be helped by just having Walker Kessler there. Like I think some of those numbers will start to look better, but I also think there's something to be said about 
player's ability to drive past Laurie Markkinen to get into the paint and to score on him. That's definitely an area of concern for me, and I'd like to see that improve. Overall, like I think Laurie Markkinen's defense isn't too much concern. Just because of his length and his size, that automatically makes him a plus defender in a lot of situations. But there are some things he needs to work on. And so I'm keeping an eye on that. Um, okay, we're going to take a quick little break. And then I'm going to kind of dive into Laurie's play with point guards and projecting his next season, as well as ranking him in the NBA. So one question people have, and I think this is a totally fair question, is how was Laurie Markkinen going to do without Mike Conley? Mike Conley assisted to Laurie Markkinen 85 times last season. For reference, Jordan Clarkson assisted to him 62. Kelly Olenek assisted to him 59 times. Taylor Horton Tucker 53 times. Colin Sexton 33 times. And Chris Dunn 14 times. Mike and Laurie had a really special connection. I've been watching a lot of their assists as I prepared for this podcast episode. A lot of the Mike Conley to Laurie Markkinen assists because... There was something there. I think there was a lot of value in their play together, and I think that's one of the reasons the Jazz had a hard time letting Mike Conley go. Personally, that's the reason I had a hard time seeing Mike Conley go because I was able to see on a nightly basis how much he was contributing to the overall movement of the offense and setting up his teammates. Like Mike Conley is such an underrated point guard, even at this stage in his career, where he is what he's like probably 35 or 36 years old. He's still an incredibly savvy passer. He's somebody that can take you off the bounce, that can score in a variety of ways. I know he didn't have like his best statistical season, but I think when you watch him on a nightly basis and just see what he can do, like I realize he's past his prime and it shows on the defensive end and maybe a little bit on offense, but he's still an incredibly good starting point guard. And I think you feel really okay if he's your starting point guard. I'm 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 very high on Mike Conley, but there's there's a lot of reason to that. Some of Mike's reads to Laurie Markkinen are reads that other players can't make. So there's there's kind of a theme I saw. A lot of times you'd have Mike Conley starting at the top in a pick and roll with like Walker Kessler, Kenny, Kelly Olynyk, or Jared Vanderbilt, and then you have Laurie Markkinen in one of the corners. So you'll kind of get Mike going around the pick starting to initiate that action. And then Laurie will come from, from the corner and start going around the perimeter, essentially moving his position. Like this is something Clay Thompson does a lot. It just tries to open up passing windows for him to be able to shoot. And Laurie Markkinen does a bit of this. So Mike Conley had an elite ability to understand when Laurie Markkinen was going to be open, when he was moving, where he was moving, and then getting him the ball in rhythm so that Laurie Markkinen could take a shot. And this is something I haven't really seen out of the other point guards. It's something I'd like to see a little bit more. I think some of the other point guards are good at finding Laurie Markkinen when he's open, when he is just in the corner all by himself. But Mike Conley and Laurie, they just they ran the offense much smoother, and I think it kind of shows. I also thought as like as far as being a pick-and-roll passer, Mike Conley just thrives in the pick-and-roll. He's so good, especially when defenses kind of open up 
Um, one thing Laurie would do a little bit is he would come and set the screen and then he would slip. And so he's essentially diving back into the lane. And when that happens, the defenders have to make a decision. They have to decide if they're going to go up on Mike or if they're going to drop. And a lot of times that's where you get defensive miscommunications. Mike only was really good at understanding those defensive miscommunications and getting Larry Markin in the ball. I just haven't seen that with any other players on the Jazz, with any of the other guards. And I think that's a, a, an area of concern. The biggest thing to me was was just Mike getting Laurie the ball in movement. I think Laurie is such a savvy off-ball player. I've talked about this a lot, but his cutting, his movement around the perimeter, his just his ability to consistently get open and reposition himself, understanding the defense, understanding how they're going to be guarding him. Laurie Markkinen has a really special ability to do so. Mike Conley was really good at understanding Laurie's ability to move and understanding where Laurie would move and how he would move. And because of that, he was able to get Laurie the ball in a lot of positions. Like I said, Mike had 85 assists to, my, to Laurie Markkinen. They only played about half a season together. And he still is blowing the water off of any other player on the Jazz. So looking at next season, you kind of have a couple different point guards. You're going to have Colin Sexton. You're going to have Jordan Clarkson probably running a little bit of point, having the ball in his hands. Taylor Horton Tucker, Chris Dunn. None of those guys are are really, really good at getting the ball to Larry Markin. I thought Taylor Horton Tucker of those four did the best job considering how they didn't play a ton of minutes together, but Taylor Horton Tucker still was able to make some of those, make not all of those reads that Mike Conley makes, but some of them. And I think there's a couple things to that. First is Taylor Horton Tucker's size. Like he's able to see over some defenses and be able to see Larry Markinen in the corner. Like a lot of times the defense will just try to take your visuals away and they'll try to block off all the lanes. So for a guy like Colin Sexton, who's, 6'1", flirting with 6'2", he's not able to see some of the things that Taylor Horton Tucker, a guy who's 6'4", is able to see. And so that's my first area of concern with Colin Sexton. I think there's a couple areas of concern. I thought Colin Sexton and Laurie Markin had a good connection in a couple different areas. Um, one of them was on, in transition, just like running a fast break. If Laurie's getting the rebound or Colin Sexton's getting the rebound or somebody else is, Colin Sexton did a good job at finding Larry Markkinen in the break. And I think that's one area you have to continue to capitalize if you're the Jazz. I thought overall they did pretty okay as a transition team. And I think there's more potential to be better. Um, but Larry Markkinen's rim running ability, his ability to get from air, from line to line, from baseline to baseline as a seven-footer is kind of unprecedented. Like It almost reminds me of Giannis in a lot of ways. So I think if you're a point guard on the Jazz, you have to be able to capitalize on that. If you're somebody that maybe doesn't get the rebound but gets the first touch after the rebound, then you have to be able to look up for Lauren Markkinen. And that's one thing we've seen Colin Sexton be able to do. There's a couple other ones. Um, so I think Sexton's best passes to Lauren Markkinen, first all, comes out of an action. Um, the Jazz like to do a lot of stuff out of the corner. So Larry will start in the corner, he'll start kind of on the baseline, and then they'll send in a screen. And Larry will come around that screen, and he's, he's getting open. It's like a pin-down screen. 
And so Colin Sexton has the ability to kind of run those plays, find Larry Merkin and went at the right time when he's coming around the screen. That's good. I think that's great. That's going to be something that's sustainable through this next year. The other way that Sexton is able to set up marketing is when Sexton uses his ability to drive and his leverage as a downhill scorer. Um, teams will kind of zero in on that and they'll want to get an easy stop because I think if you're a team, if you're a seven footer and you see a guy like Colin Sexton, a six one guy going out of the basket, I mean, you're thinking, oh, that's an easy block. Like we're going to be able to stop this play one way or another. So Colin Sexton, he has a good way of being able to use that leverage, using leveraging that ability to drive and kicking the ball out to Larry Markinen. I thought that was a great way that he was able to set up Markinen. I'm concerned that he only assisted Markinen on three, 33 assists. Um, like that's by far the fewest out of all the guards that got a good chunk of rotation minutes. And so... We'll see if that connection improves. I know they played a little bit together in Cleveland, but I don't think it was enough to like actually form a connection as far as on-court connection. They just haven't had a ton of opportunity. And so that's something I'm keeping an eye on to see if that improves. The Jordan Clarkson marketing connection, I think, is a little bit better. Jordan Clarkson is a really good scorer, and he knows how to score. He knows where to score. And I think teams are starting to zero in on that. They're starting to understand, like, oh, Jordan Clarkson, he wants to get to the mid-range. He wants to get to this uh, kind of 8 to 15 feet range where he can throw up his little floater. And so they're starting to zero in on that. His ability to be a passer out of that, I think, is very important for the Jazz next year. I project Jordan Clarkson to be your starting shooting guard. And I would be interested to see if he is somebody that can consistently make those kinds of reads where if Larry Markkinen's in the corner or if Larry Markkinen is cutting off the ball and Jordan Clarkson is in a position to either score or pass, I want him to be the passer. I want him to... I mean, at the end of the day, you want Jordan Clarkson to be Jordan Clarkson because that's the best version of Jordan Clarkson you can get. But you also want him to be able to create for others when it just comes to the long-term trajectory of your team. So that's something I'm watching. I actually think Taylor Horton Tucker out of this group was the best at passing to Laurie Markkinen. I've watched a bit of those assists and tried to get an understanding of it. Like I said, I think Taylor Horton Tucker, just his size makes him automatic makes him able to read make some reads that other players can't and so i'm curious to see how that continues and if they get a lot of minutes together this next season so many assists for larry marketing come out of like drive and kick opportunities you'll have colin sexton or taylor horton tucker chris dunn driving and then kicking out to larry marketing in the corner so i have a couple questions there just some things to keep an eye on First is, will defenses this next year be more keyed in on Laurie Markkinen? I think, especially at the beginning of last year, it was a surprise. But after, I don't know, some this happens with players. Um, sometimes players get figured out, and life gets a little bit harder for them, especially after they have a really good season. So I'm curious to see whether or not players and defenses will be zeroed in on Laurie Markkinen in a way that we didn't see last season. I also wonder... Does John Collins give Laurie Markkinen enough spacing? I project that John Collins is going to be the starter at the four. Um, I still think Kelly Olenek and Laurie will probably play a bit together just because they played really well together last season. So I don't know how much Collins and Laurie Markkinen will be playing, but I expect that they probably start some games and maybe close some games together. I don't think that's out of reason to say that. 
So does John Collins provide him enough spacing or do you want John Collins kind of moving the same way Larry Marketing moves? I think there will be situations where you have Larry as the spacer and then John Collins is cutting, or you'll have situations where Collins is the spacer and Larry is cutting. That's just a, something to keep an eye on. Okay, we're going to take one quick last little break, and then we're going to jump into some of the offensive numbers. Um, some of oh, we, are, we already touched the offensive numbers. We're going to jump into projecting his next season and then trying to rank him in the NBA. Where does he stand? And then we'll close out the episode. I've hoped, I hope you guys up until this point have enjoyed the Laurie Marketing episode. I think he's such an interesting player. It's fun to understand all these little nuances to his game and where he will be next year. So looking at Laurie Marketing's seventh season, this upcoming season, I think there's a couple things you have to think about. First is the new pieces. So essentially you're replacing Mike Conley, Malik Beasley, and Jared Vanderbilt with Keontae George, John Collins, and Taylor Hendricks. I would assume that those are the three guys that will be more involved, more in the rotation. Um, So I'm curious to see how his connection with each of those three guys plays out. Um, I don't know how much he and Hendricks will play together because I think, I mean, I think there's situations where they should play together. I think it'd be good um, for the long term, but I'm more curious to see about how he plays with John Collins and how he plays with Keontae George. I mentioned a little bit about John Collins. Like I think defensively, they'll probably both do fine as long as they're playing with Walker Kessler. I'm curious to see what those two would do defensively if they're playing with Kelly Olynyk. Um, obviously, they have size going for them, and so that's always going to be an advantage. The Keontae-George connection is interesting, though, because looking at the long-term trajectory of some of the Utah Jazz's point guards, I think you believe in Keontae's long-term trajectory more than anybody else. Keontae showed such a savviness and great understanding of basketball in the summer league and played with so much patience played with an ability to run sets to run what the coach wanted him to. And I think that's really promising. If you're the Utah jazz, that's something to really be looking at and asking yourself, like, is this going to be the starting point guard and how soon are we going to insert him into the lineup? So that's one thing I want to keep an eye on. I want to see how they, those two play together because they could potentially, and like, I don't know if this is going to happen or not, but you could be looking at those two as your potential franchise cornerstones in a year or two from now. You could see them as the 1A and the 1B of the Utah Jazz franchise. So that's something I'm keeping an eye on. I think he's in for a good season. Um, I know Mike Conley being gone is different, and that makes it a little bit harder for Laurie to be able to get some of the stuff he was able to get but at the same time, you're retaining a lot of the playmaking he got from last year. You're keeping around Kelly Olynyk, Jordan Clarkson, Colin Sexton, Taylor Horn Tucker, Chris Dunn, all the guys that had assisted to him the most after Mike Conley. And so because of that, I think there's a lot of reason to, to believe that Laurie won't suffer from Utah's lack of playmaking. Looking at some of Laurie's numbers, I don't know where you see a big drop-off. Maybe he isn't able to score as efficiently. I think that would be the one thing. But the reason I believe he can still score as efficiently is because so much of what he does isn't on the ball, which makes it so much harder to guard. If you're a defense and you have to be worried about somebody off the ball, that just makes him a much harder guard. I think Kevin Durant caught into this a little bit on Twitter. 
and talking about Steph Curry um, because Steph Curry is such an elite off-ball player, but he's also elite on the ball. Kevin Durant's kind of the same. I don't think people understand how good Kevin Durant is off the ball, coming around screens, being able to create space off the ball. Laurie Markkinen has a little bit of that ability. And so I think looking at Laurie Markkinen's seventh season, you have to ask yourself, hey, is he going to still be able to get into some of these actions? And what are teams going to do against him? Because if teams start to double him, I think Laurie at times last season showed that he can pass out of the double team. Being a seven-footer just gives you an advantage as a passer. And I think Laurie Markin, Laurie Markinen will be in positions to leverage that, which I think makes teams hesitant to want to double team him. I think you'd rather have one hand in his face and two hands in his face and one open guy under the basket. So I think those are some of the trade-offs you have to look at when projecting his seventh season. Yeah, there might not be as much playmaking. I think the defense could improve though. Um, I think just the overall talent on the roster, especially from the end of the season has probably improved. I think you feel good about John Collins being on the team. I think you get feel good about Kelly Olynyk coming off the bench and then Laurie Markkinen will be playing with two guards that their job will be to get Laurie Markkinen in the ball, to get him in the right positions. Because I think if you're the Utah Jazz, you want to maximize his ability to be sort of a number one option. This is what we saw after the All-Star break last year. And I think after the All-Star break is the best indication of the Laurie Markkinen we're going to get this next season. The usage percentage jumped a lot. You had Laurie Markkinen start to bring up the ball. And... That's a really important distinction between the first part of the season and the second part of the season. Laurie Markkinen bringing up the ball, initiating the action, not just being an off-ball player is going to be crucial for his development. And while it might hurt some of his efficiencies, I do still think he's going to have the same scoring ability he will that he had this last season. Uh, There's no indication that that's going to go down because he was able to score so efficiently and do it in such like an almost easy manner. Like he's not forcing anything. Things aren't just happening out of nowhere. Like there's years and years of data going back that shows Larry Markkinen's a good three-point shooter. And then he has a year showing that he can be a really good attacker at the rim. You just watch it. And I don't understand what part of it is going to go down. So maybe I'm wrong. Feel free to make a counter to me and say, Hey, this is why Larry Markkinen won't be as such a good inside scorer, but overall I do think he projects to be the same caliber of inside scorer, the same caliber of scorer that he was this last year. The big question is now, where does Larry Markkinen rank in the NBA? I think this is an interesting question because offensively, I think he's pretty clearly a top 20 player. Um, Some of the metrics I look at to try and evaluate where players land I love this little section that Basketball Reference has on their player pages. So Larry Markkinen last season, he was 10th in offensive win shares. That means he was the 10th most contributing player to offensive wins. He was 17th in offensive box plus minus. He was 20th in player efficiency rating. He was 20th in win shares. Uh, The guy made the 20th most three-pointers last year. He has one of the best true shooting percentages in all of NBA history. Like you start to look at some of the percentages and some of the efficiencies and Lauren Markkinen had an insane, an insane offensive season last year. 
He ended up being 17th in all NBA voting shares. I think that was fair. That was justified. He was just two places off from making an all NBA team, which might end up being a good thing for the Jazz in the long term. He has been a solid defensive rebounder his entire career, so he's always added some sort of value on defense. I think the you get to the point, though, where you have to go through the exercise and actually list all the players and kind of see, like, who is he better than? So we'll, we'll go through it really fast. We'll get, like, through the top 10. Nicole Jokic, Giannis Antetokounmpo, uh, LeBron, Steph Curry, Jason Tatum, Luka Doncic, Devin Booker. Yeah, uh, I'm pretty sure I said Giannis, Joel Embiid, Jimmy Butler. I think you get through kind of that tier. Damian Lillard, I would say, is better. Um, but And then you start to get to like the next tier, like Jalen Brown, Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, Trey Young, John Morant, Zion Williamson. Certainly from an availability standpoint, he's better than some of those guys. Defensively, I'd, I think he is better than some of those guys. Like, I would much rather have Laurie defensively than John Morant or Trey Young. However, those two, those two just do so much more on the offensive side. So I do think you get to this tier of players. You get the next tier is where I would start. And I think you're looking at like Bam Adebayo. You're looking at Pascal Siakam, Brandon Ingram. Some of these guys that are flirting with the top 20 range. And I think that's where Laura Markkinen lands. Uh, maybe one day we'll do the actual breakdown. We'll break down each player's stats and decide where Larry Markkinen ranks. Um, I think there's certainly an argument for him to be one of the best forwards in the NBA. But there's still, there's still, he still needs to prove that what he can do in a playoff setting. And I think that's the biggest question mark with Larry Markkinen going forward and trying to understand where he ranks in the NBA is he's never done this in the playoffs. And he's had one, when he's had one season that you could count as sort of a one-off. So what is he going to be able to do? Is he going to be able to sustain this last season? I think that's the ultimate question when you ask, where does Larry Markkinen rank in the NBA? Thank you everybody for listening to this episode of the Swiss Lake City podcast. As always, this episode is brought to you by Jazz Lead on Twitter, where I am creating daily content. Also brought to you by Underdog Fantasy. Check the show notes for details on how to get that offer. And if you want to support me, if you want to help me continue on my dream on making podcasts, making Utah Jazz related content, feel free to support in the link below, in the bio below, in the show notes below. Anyways, I appreciate everybody for listening. It's awesome. We're, we're getting close to 700 listens through 12 episodes of the podcast. And I appreciate everybody for taking the time out of your day to listen. Have a good one.